Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. Thanks for coming back, my friends. Wanted to jump in where we left off last week. I'll just kind of bring us back into the conversation last week. We asked a pretty simple question, which was, what is Buddhism? (laughs) And as we talked about last week, the inspiration for the question was just to acknowledge that for those of us in the West, coming to Buddhism can be quite the journey. And where the Buddha certainly did not have to ask himself what it was to be a Buddhist, because he was not a Buddhist, we often have to ask ourselves, what exactly are we doing on this Eightfold Path? What kind of journey is this that we're engaging in? So last week we talked a little bit about religion, the R word, and whether Buddhism was a religion and does it matter? And uh, the real underlying questions were not as much what is Buddhism, but what does it mean to you? What does Buddhism mean to you? What does meditation mean to you? It's your practice, of course. And as you know, I always like to say that Even though we walk in the Buddha's footsteps, it's our feet that are doing the walking. And our practice is our own, and what happens inside is something quite personal. And it has its own identity and its own meaning. And for us in the West, coming to the Dharma means different things to different people, depending on how we stumble onto the cushion, or onto the chair, so to speak. The impetus for last week's Dharma talk came initially from conversation we had about how we're going to name ourselves <laughs> as a sangha and if we wanted to use the word sangha or buddhism or those kind of things so we had this healthy conversation about that identity which made me start thinking about oh wow yeah there's a spiritual identity that i have and other people have and what does that mean to our practice the part that i wanted to talk about today that's really pertinent to us as westerners is the the question about whether or not the Dharma is a therapy and what the difference between therapy and the Dharma is, and if there's a significant difference, and is that meaningful to us in our practice? And I think there there are some really good points that might be helpful for us to take to heart as we practice. I know it's been a significant experience for me to try and distinguish between my need for therapy and my need for awakening, which sometimes are not the same thing. Sometimes they connect, but sometimes they're completely different. So being a therapist and a Dharma teacher, I thought I would dive into that just a little bit today and give some feedback on my perspective. It's something that's pretty commonly talked about in the West. There's this uh, story, I don't know if it's a story or a tale, or there's a story that goes around that says, you know, if you look over human history, wherever Buddhism went, whatever culture it engages with or comes in contact with, it tends to impact greatly. It tends to have a huge transformative impact on the countries or cultures that it uh, ends up engaging with. And it's kind of funny because in the West, when, and I guess I'll say North America, but West also Europe, but uh, when Buddhism came to the West, the 
the first impact it had was on psychology. The big impact it had that transformed us, at least in North American culture, was the impact that the Dharma had on the therapy community and psychology, then leading into neuroscience and medicine and all of this other stuff. But the first contact that was had was between Western psychotherapy and the Dharma. And <laughs> the way I like to see it, it's like the Dharma came over and then like got to be best friends with psychology and they kind of hung out and they noticed that they were similar and they had like, they're like, oh wow, like we both like want to eliminate suffering, sweet. Like, you know, they kind of were texting each other and it was like this relationship developed between Western psychotherapy and Buddhism that became so in, in mesh that in the West, sometimes you can't tell the difference between one or the other. There's a lot of fusion. I was looking online yesterday and came across several websites that were offering Dharma therapy, where it was complete fusion of Dharma and therapy. Um, and there's a lot of that in the West. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that, that fusion a bit and the pros and cons of that experience and some things I think we need to know as practitioners too that can help us along the way. One of the things, well, I'll take a step back. One of the things that I think can be important to understand about American Buddhism is that the unique thing about Buddhism in America is that unlike a lot of other versions of Buddhism, science and psychology have become big interpreters of the teachings and have flipped back around and created sort of a feedback loop that has really changed the Dharma significantly. So in American Buddhism, there's a strong psychological approach to the practice. And a lot of us don't even realize that in the West, psychology has like infiltrated our whole way of being, that we don't even think of ourselves as a highly psychological culture. But we really are highly impacted by Jung and Freud and, the, and these kinds of things. And that sometimes if you even look at the news, there's like psychological terms that get kind of thrown around by people. And so psychology is like really heavily infused in Western culture. And so it makes sense that it would have befriended, uh, befriended the Dharma. And one of the things that's talked about a lot is that when Buddhism meets psychotherapy, the thing that they share the most is their claim to relieve some kind of suffering, right? Like both of them are claiming like, hey, there's healing here. There's some kind of relief from suffering that happens in both of the models or however you want to define it. So you can see how they looked at each other and were like, oh yeah, we both eliminate suffering and there's different ways that we do it. So one tendency is to look at that similarity and say, okay, they both relieve suffering. So pretty much we can kind of just kind of move between the two of them, like they're kind of similar and we can have a little bit of Dharma, a little bit of therapy back and forth. And to some degree that's true. Um, but I wanted to offer some differences between the two traditions, if you will, that can help us get unstuck during particular times in our practice. I think the first thing I'll do is just explain briefly the superficial differences between the two, and then I'm going to take a little bit of a deep dive here. One of the things that's hard to see on the surface is that though Dharma and psychotherapy both do provide incredible healing and relief from suffering, they both actually have their own specialties. They're both actually designed to liberate us from a particular type of suffering. They're not actually designed to heal us from the same type of suffering. There's similarities, but they're both actually designed for distinct types of human suffering. And I'll explain how, how this works. So 
On the one hand, psychotherapy, that we're all pretty familiar with, at least in theory, is designed for personal well-being and what we call personal suffering. Personal suffering meaning the kind of suffering that tends to arise during our early developmental period, like as a kid as we grow up, right? It's suffering that begins early and starts to show up as we become adults, right? The inheritance of things that we've experienced from the past that now come up as adults that we find are intruding in our life in some way, we're having moods arise that we don't care for so much, whatever, anxiety, depression, things like that. So we, personal healing is where psychotherapy tends to focus. And by personal, I really do mean suffering that is deeply rooted during our early development as we become a sense of self in the world. Those early stressors that we have and those early experiences that we end up having to work out later on Therapy really is great at that. It really focuses on that kind of suffering. And the goal of psychotherapy, technically speaking, is for us to get a sense of well-being, a sense of wellness with our mental, emotional state, right? To have a sense of wholeness and to have a sense of self-confidence that we can be in the world as an adult, right? As a mature being. And we're feeling okay about that. Like we have a sense of like, this is who I am and I'm doing okay in the world and I can function in, the, in relationships and those kind of things. And psychotherapy is really good at that kind of healing, helping us to unpack things from the past and to bring that wholeness into the present and allow us to have what we call a healthy sense of self. Now, as Dharma practitioners, you know the word self is a little... <laughs> we got to be careful with that word, right? So I'll, I'll go into this a little bit, but I know I know what audience I'm speaking to, so you know what I mean by self, wink, wink, nod, nod, right? Self. Right? So we, we use psychotherapy to gain a healthy sense of self. So that is what the psychotherapy is really good at. Now, Buddhism is really quite different. The Dharma focuses on universal suffering, the suffering that's associated with what it is to be a human being. Meaning, even after we get to that point where we're healthy, functional adults, life is suffering. There's so much stuff is suffering. Even when we're doing really well, there's craving, there's aversion, there's not getting our way, there's loss. Buddhism begins with that in our life. Buddhism begins with this idea that even when we have a healthy self, we've gone through our life and we've healed through whatever inheritance that we've healed from and now we're just living then we meet dukkha and dukkha is the domain of the dharma the suffering that we experience even when everything is going as good as it can be and we realize oh i'm not always gonna get my way my body's gonna break down there's gonna be aging illness sickness death right so Buddhism deals with these bigger existential universal sufferings that we all experience, whether we have a healthy self or not. Nietzsche is going to be there, right? We're all aging. We're all going to get sick. We're all going to pass away. So Buddhism really works well with those big sufferings. It's designed for us to really experience what we call transpersonal healing. So personal healing is what we do when we grow into that first sense of self, that first identity that we get as a human in the world. We go through our childhood, 
and we have this sense of self. We might have some baggage, as we say, right, that we want to unpack and kind of get integrated and heal from. That's personal. And then once that personal self is living in the world, it begins to notice sometimes that there's dukkha, that there's suffering, and then begins to ask, well, is there a way out of this existential suffering of human experience? Is there something, is there a happiness beyond just my sensory stimulation that I'm getting every day? So the Dharma is the domain of those bigger human questions, where therapy is really more designed for uh, just personal, the personal sufferings that we've experienced that usually tend to arise in our past. One way I like to think about it is that Let's say, for example, you're having trouble, let's say there's some struggle in, a, in your relationship with somebody, right? Marriage or partnership. And more than likely, if you look in the Pali Suttas, you're not gonna find great marriage advice, right? You're not gonna find in the Pali Suttas some great interventions on how to talk to your partner better, right? Or figuring out like what to do with your kiddos when they're acting up or things like that. The Dharma doesn't have a lot to say about those kind of things. In those situations, you might go to a marriage counselor, right? The Pali Suttas may not really help you with that kind of thing. So we can kind of see, sure, there's going to be things that would be great for therapy, and there's going to be things that are really designed for the Dharma. You might see it as therapy is designed to create a sense of healthy self, and the Dharma then realizes Oh, by the way, that healthy self you have is impermanent, constantly changing, and its nature is to suffer. That's the next set of healing that we do. So Dharma, Dharma basically begins where therapy, therapy takes you to where like, okay, I'm like, I've got, got my relationship with my mom better, and like, okay, I got these other things okay, I've got some self-confidence, but then there's just the suffering of the world. And then that's where, so we do a self-creation with therapy, and then we go not self with the Dharma. We begin to look at the whole process of selfing and see, oh, this is dukkha, there's suffering here. This is impermanent. This is not self. So where Western psychology really talks about getting the self to be healthy and confident and whole, the Dharma looks at that and says, okay, good work. Now can you look at that as impermanent, changing, and not self? That's where the Dharma comes in. So they're very compatible, but they really addressed almost two parts of the human journey. One is kind of the beginning development into a sense of I, me, mine. And the second part is looking at the I, me, mine and saying, maybe that's not what you actually are. <laughs> so the Dharma comes around and says, by the way, that thing that you just created for yourself isn't real. So that's where the Dharma steps in and kind of pulls the rug out <laughs> from under us and allows us to see some of these deeper and more poignant layers of suffering. That's where the Dharma is really good. And so knowing that difference can be helpful. One of the things that is often pointed out in, now we don't, <laughs> so we don't know to what degree, degree the story of the Buddha's life, what's true and you know, so on, how he had relationships with his aunt and his mom dying and the whole history there of him leaving. But if we look at just the story at face value, what we see is a person who grew up with a sense of protection and privilege, that this is a person that, according to the story, was protected from the dangers of the world. This is someone who didn't experience a lot of stress, 
had money, food, family, friends, and luxury to boot. So when we look at the Buddha going into his journey, this is not a person that was suffering. Did not, we're not seeing childhood trauma here. We're not seeing you know, a lack of self-confidence or self-esteem. We're seeing someone who was very healthy, oriented to the world, had a stable sense of ego, and then goes on this spiritual journey. So sometimes when scholars ask, well, why didn't the Buddha just create like a type of psychotherapy for people in the Dharma? Like why did there was so much focus on aging, illness, death, and impermanence and not self? And some scholars say, because he didn't have that issue when he went on his journey. He, he wasn't in a position to have a sense that there was trauma or something that had to be reconciled for him to have healing in the way that the transpersonal part was. It might not have been something that the Buddha himself would have had to go through. Another thing that people point out is that the Dharma in the beginning was pretty intense. You had to leave your family and leave your home and go live with folks, and you're renouncing the world. So you're not having typical friendships, you're not out there, <laughs> I was gonna say back then in pre-modern, it's like you're not gonna be listening to music like this, but like, you know, you're not hanging out and listening to music or I guess doing drugs or whatever the case may be. You're basically leaving the world and going into spiritual practice. In order to do that, your sense of self has to be pretty confident and stable and secure. In, in psychology, we call that healthy attachment which just means that the Buddha would have been a very healthy psychological individual to have undergone the journey that he went, went through and come out the other side. And those that were joining the Sangha were really confident. I mean, they left their homes. They weren't feeling insecure about that. So when we look at the original kind of Sangha, we see that people who had other things to rectify, so to speak, and to heal, probably wouldn't have left their homes and families to go, to go do that. It probably wouldn't have been an inclination. So one of the things that we experience here in the West as householders is that sometimes we come to the Dharma with some things from our past that we're still trying to heal from. Relationships and stressors, systemic impact, all kinds of different things that we might have that we're trying to work through. And it's really common in the West for... Well, let me step back. I was just going to say that when Buddhism met psychology, when the young kids, who were very young at the time, in their 20s, went over to Asia and brought back the Dharma, a lot of those folks who were in the Dharma then became therapists. And then they inspired therapists who were here to then become, become Buddhists. So there was this whole kind of flipperoo that happened, right, in America, North America, where these Western kids went to Asia, studied, came back, and then many of them became therapists, or the therapists then saw the Dharma and became uh, Buddhists. And so in... The United States especially, there's so many Dharma teachers who are also therapists for that reason. There's this whole mixture. And so for the most part, when we're working in the Dharma, oftentimes the person that's teaching has enough sense to help people through basic personal healing alongside Dharma work, not doing formal therapy, but they can bring those perspectives in. So we've been in this interesting position in the West to have therapy in the Dharma kind of doing this little dance that it does. Where it can become challenging 
and I'll just t talk about my own uh, background in the Dharma, where it can become challenging is in psychotherapy, we often really engage in the experiences, the Vedana, the sensations, the thoughts. We actually engage them, and we do a lot of talking back and forth, not only with the therapist about what's going on, but with ourselves. There's a lot of engagement with the experience. Where in the Dharma, as you know, our big thing is equanimity, is watching the experience. We don't worry about where it comes from. We just watch it arise and watch it pass away. In the Dharma, we do a lot more detachment, right? A lot more not-self. Where in therapy, there's a lot of selfing, a lot of interaction. The challenge with things like trauma or anxiety or depression is that sometimes if we just spend our days trying to watch it, we never feel like there's movement in the healing. It, it feels like we just keep watching the same sensation come up, come up, come up. And so lots of folks who need some therapy to move through that healing spend a little too long trying to get the Dharma to move their depression, to move their anxiety, to move their stress and trauma. And it, it doesn't work because there needs to be some engagement because it's a deep-rooted suffering that is tied to this early development. And just watching it in a rise and pass away can be helpful because we're not as impacted by it. But many of us who have those type of chronic mental health conditions have found that if you just keep watching it, you end up just keeping and you just end up watching it. And we feel like there's no movement. So it's one of those things where we have to balance our own experience to say, okay, I've been trying to work on this pain for quite a while been in the Dharma a few years, and I'm not seeing any movement in the healing. I'm seeing this kind of, it just keeps coming up. It just keeps coming up. Oh, there it is. I'm watching it. It's arising. It's passing away. And so sometimes we do need to have a different relationship with that energy in order to move the whole process forward, to have some integration. And what happened with myself, so I had significant trauma as a kid. My, my mom was severe borderline uh, personality disorder and was severely delusional. And uh, truth wasn't a thing that, w truth was something hard for me to discern with her in life. And so there was a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress. Um, and her mental health condition produced volatility and verbal aggression and violence. And so I was always on edge trying to predict like how I could be safe and how I could navigate. And so I ended up with anxiety. Anxiety was the symptom after years of being on edge as a kiddo, that early sense of self wired in this sense of anxious apprehension. And so when I got to the Dharma, I started meditating. Oh my God, it felt so, for the first time, all this kind of tense anxiety kind of went away. And so I was like, oh, this, all I need to do is just keep meditating, and eventually the rest of the anxiety will kind of leak out or something, you know, like just kind of evaporate <laughs> into the ether or something. Um, but after 15 years, I noticed that even though I was more equanimous to the experience, and I, didn't, I could change how I reacted to the anxiety so I wouldn't get like a panic attack anymore, I could f see the anxiety arising and go, oh, look, okay, we'll bring equanimity, we'll change your breathing, and then I could see that the nervous system would calm down. And I got really good at managing anxiety through Vipassana. I also use Vipassana to feel more connected to my parents and to heal wounds there with them and within myself. So the Dharma did this amazing work. But there was this point about 15, 16 years in where 
I just kept thinking, there's something not moving here. I'm not able to move the healing. Like there is like there's a stuckness that I felt related to the anxiety. And luckily I would gone to a Dharma teacher and I'd asked them, I was like, Am I, is there another tool? Is there another trick? Like what is the secret here to kind of work on this thing? And they said, there isn't. It's probably best to go see a therapist. And I was like, oh, okay. So I, like, well, that's, so I did. I went back to therapy and spent a year doing some trauma work with a really good therapist. And movement happened. Like, suddenly there was a new breakthrough in my experience of healing. And when that therapeutic breakthrough happened, the Dharma completely moved as well. Like, there was this huge leap forward in the Dharma end. And I could see clearly that... For some of us, depending on who we are and how we have these early childhood things, if we wait too long in the Dharma, waiting for the Dharma to hit some of those deep-rooted childhood stuff, we, we might actually need a different intervention to get some of that personal healing done so then the not-self part can really blossom at the back end, so at afterwards, like at the second stage. So I know for me, it's been really helpful to be able to see clearly that there's sometimes that the suffering that we're experiencing is not be really because of clinging or craving or sickness, aging. Like it's not that Dharma stuff that we're working on. There's something else there that can help us move it along. So I always like to bring that up because in my own experience, like I said, once the therapy happened, then the Dharma also moved. Like I felt a huge movement. There was a big movement forward in my practice because there was a sense of wholeness I was now operating from, and it was much easier for me to then let go of that new self that was more secure and had a different sense of well-being, and then I could really let go in a way I couldn't before. Another thing with um, the five hindrances. So uh, an interesting thing with the Dharma is that all healthy selves experience the five hindrances. It doesn't matter who you are. If you have a mind, five hindrances, right? It doesn't matter what, where you were raised or what you're doing. No matter what, if you bring mindfulness to the mind, there's going to be hindrances. The Dharma works really well in helping us to transcend those hindrances. So sometimes it's difficult to tell a hindrance from an earlier childhood wound that's coming up. For example, it's easy to mistake sloth and torpor for sloth and torpor and not depression. It's easy to mistake restlessness, agitation, and worry, which every healthy mind experiences, for, anxi for an anxiety condition that might be more significant. And so while if someone comes to Dharma and they're just working on the hindrances, they may mistake one for the other. And you would know if you have stressors in your life from your childhood, it's your childhood, you would, you would know if you had them. Um, but it's one of the things to look out for is when you're working with your meditation to notice, okay, I know I've had these stressors way back when, am I able to manage them as hindrances? And if you work with them long enough and you're not feeling that movement, then that might be like a question of like, okay, is, is there something here I need to take a look at? Is there something here that might be slightly different that I need to take care of with a different type of intervention before I can then use Vipassana? to move myself uh, forward. I'll give a couple more examples. Um, this is a long time ago now, but I had a friend who was really deep into the Dharma and um, was married to another meditator. 
and marriage wasn't working out so well for them. And I remember specifically having multiple conversations about his concern was, can't I just vipassana my way through this? Can't, I mean, I'm a meditator. If I meditate long enough, the marriage is going to get fixed. Like, if we just keep practicing vipassana, everything will be, be okay. So divorce and so on, it didn't fix. It didn't fix. Um, but I've seen this happen with students before, myself included, where we sort of wait for the dharma to fix things. And it's not really designed to fix. Quote, it's not designed to fix anyway, of course, but if we are trying to use it a little bit too much to fix some of these wounds or we're waiting for it to do so, it's just one of those things where we might consider reflecting like, okay, maybe I need to try something else or a different part of the practice and then we can see what happens. So that's just one, one other example from my own experience. Um, the other thing I just wanted to mention is that there's of course going to be a crossover and a gray area between psychotherapy and the Dharma. It could have just as easily been that the Buddha had a tenfold path and the first two folds were more psychotherapeutic and there was other kind of work that he came up with, right? It didn't, it's not how it works. And in Eastern psychology, in general, it really, really heavily focuses on existential sufferings, like universal, big sufferings. Throughout all of, when you look at Indian philosophy, you're not seeing a lot of the nuanced type of psychotherapeutic healing that you see in the West. It's like the cultures just went in these two different directions, the way they looked at suffering, and that was just what we have now. So one other thing to just say is that what creates this healthy sense of I, I, me, mine, as the Buddha says, is if as you grew up, there was a sense of care, a sense of safety, a sense of respect, a sense of nourishment, if as you grew up, there was that sense in your life, then more than likely what you're experiencing are the five hindrances. Welcome, strap in, welcome to being a human, you're set to go. But if you know that you did have stuff in your childhood that was a little stressful, you didn't always feel safe or cared for or secure in some way, it's possible that there's these little fissures in that sense of self, and something else might be, you know, something you would check out. So thanks for listening. I just wanted to bring that up as part of uh, our journey into the Dharma. And again, this wouldn't be a topic that would be relevant in pre-modern Buddhism, uh, but for us as Westerners, and because we're householders, we have a different sense of where we're coming from and what we're growing up into. And uh, it's just great to be able to acknowledge that sometimes we need a little more support in what we're doing. Because the practice is <laughs> dharma so hard as it is to get that uh, that non-attachment in there. So, all right, my friends, let's uh, plop into presence and finish off with some loving kindness, and we're good to go. And just take a few moments to breathe in a way that really feels comfortable and nourishing in this moment. What kind of breathing would bring you back in touch with your body, give you a sense of rest and well-being? Maybe some long breaths, maybe some short breaths. Just breathe in a way that produces a sense of relaxation and ease.
being awake and aware to this breathing body. Once again, let's attune to Sangha, community of spiritual friends coming together in support of our well-being. Let's offer some gratitude to everyone in this room and in our digital Dharma Hall. Gratitude for their very presence in our lives, the generosity of presence in community. I would invite you to bring awareness to the pleasure of gratitude in the body. Can you notice the pleasure of gratitude? And how it brings some ease to the heart. Attune to that sense of ease. Let us complete this evening by answering this question. If you could wish anything for all beings in this moment and know that wish would come to pass, what would you wish with each breath? May all beings be free from suffering and new true kindness, compassion, and joy in this very lifetime. friends. Be safe, be well. I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.